Shalom from here in the Holy Land. Welcome to Conversations with Yael Podcast. I'm your host, Yael Eckstein, President and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Each month, I will invite leading thought leaders, pastors, rabbis, and other influential guests to discuss the importance of Israel in the world today. For those familiar with my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, which explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, this podcast takes that understanding and translates it into ongoing support for Israel among Christians and the critical need to nurture that support with the next generation of Christians. Join me now as we begin this important dialogue. Today's podcast is very near and dear to my heart. On February 6, 2019, my father, my Abba, Rabbi Chiel Eckstein, died suddenly from a heart attack. My father was the founder of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, and I had the blessing of working alongside him for almost 15 years. When he passed away, I lost both a loving parent and my mentor. On today's podcast, I want to celebrate my father's life and his groundbreaking work by focusing on who he was and the contribution that he made to the world. And to do that, I couldn't think of a better guest to have on the podcast than another exceptional member of my family, my father's beloved younger brother and my uncle, Uncle Beryl Eckstein. Few people knew my father better. Beryl saw my father through it all, from the beginning of the fellowship, through the difficult early years, to the years of unprecedented success. Uncle Beryl, welcome, welcome, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Yael, and thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts of uh, my brother and your father. Uh, This is a very emotional and personal podcast and reflection for both of us. Um, But before we talk about my father, Uncle Beryl, I want to talk about the older generations in our family. I believe that everyone in our family has been shaped in some way by the generations that came before us. A lot of people don't realize that Jews have always lived in Israel, even before the establishment of the state in 1948. And our family goes back many generations in Jerusalem. So can you tell me a little bit about our family roots in Jerusalem? Sure. Our family history in Israel begins approximately 200 years ago, when Baruch Shor moved to Israel from the Ukraine in approximately 1830. In 1848, Baruch Shor's son opened up the first winery in Jerusalem. The family tradition of winemaking continues to till, till today. The family expanded and my father was actually born about 150 yards from the Temple Mount. Wow. We, the riots of 1929 caused the family to both sell the winery and move to Meisharim. The Eckstein side of the family can be traced to a young orphan who fled the pogroms of Russia in the 1880s. His name was Yechiel Tzvi Eckstein. <laughs> He lived in Meisharim, was a pious man who worked as a shochet, as a butcher. In the 1930s, he went with my father, my grandfather, and his wife to America to work to support his 16 children. 
Wow. So only the four of them went to America. After a long boat ride, which must have taken weeks, my great-grandmother landed in America with the family, with my father and grandfather. She stayed for eight hours, and she said, I cannot live outside the Holy Land. So she took the boat right back to Israel. Yechiel was the only one of my generation to meet my Baba Gittel, my great-grandmother. So she went back knowing the holiness of Israel, and that is the story of my family, really, of our family. The Bible tells us, Dori Bervi Yashuvihena, that the fourth generation will return to Israel. My father was blessed to live, to see the return of his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren to Israel. This is a blessing that my father never took for granted and is also one that didn't happen without my father instilling in each of us a tremendous love for the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Wow. Okay. So now I understand where all of these voices in my head from the time I was born in Chicago of go back to Israel. But it, it's an amazing story just as far as I was born in America. And I take that as a given. But in reality, I was the second generation born in America that ended up moving back to Israel. And my father and you were the first generation. So our branch of the family moved to America in the 1920s. And while my father was born in America, in Massachusetts, you were born in Canada. So how do you think, after hearing that whole story of our heritage, of where we come from, how do you think that having our roots in Israel affected you and my father and the rest of our family? Uh, our lives were always blessed with song. Uh, we sat around the Sabbath table. I think, I think when you think of our family, you think of Sabbath in many different ways. But we were blessed with song. And my father um, instilled in us a, a family anthem, which we sang at uh, both my father's funeral and at your father's funeral. And that family anthem... Of of going back to the temple and going back and yearning for Jerusalem is something that we think about all the time and we're brought up with. Uh, love for Torah, for land of Israel was something that we always uh, were instilled with. Yechiel, in particular, in Israel, um, went when we went at 17 years old. He went to yeshiva to Karen Biavne which is an intense yeshiva that combines both military service and learning. He was totally immersed in Torah studies. This was the time after the Six-Day War when every soldier was a hero, as they are now. But everyone looked at the, every soldier after the Six-Day War as being sort of blessed by God. His yeshiva promoted Bible study and army service, specifically in the paratrooper brigade. Yechiel was totally hooked. The soldiers with their new pressed uniforms and special red boots walk through the middle steps to the study hall, proud and tall. Yechiel yearned to walk up those middle steps, and he, de and he desired to be one of the proud defenders of Israel. I think he always lived that dream. 
At the same time, Yechiel started being influenced by the writings of some of the Hasidic masters and developed a close bond with many of our Hasidic family. These family members who were so genuine, pious, and learned had such a tremendous impact on Yechiel and on his growing up and his love for Israel. They were so sincere they were so pious. Yechiel Zviekstein came in 1880s. From that one person who was an orphan, there are probably well over 100 Yechiel Zviekstein's now. There are over 60 families, Ekstein families, just in Beitar. Yechiel used to have a tradition. He would go up to the Mount of Olives with his cousins that were named Yechiel Zviekstein to the grave of Yechiel Zviekstein. Just think about that for a second, going with people with your heritage to the place that really the Messiah will walk from. Look over Jerusalem and see your history. It's just an amazing, it was so impactful. And he was 17, 18, 19 years old. He was I there never for heard two years. That. He used to do that. That's such a deep message that I'm going to go back to in some other podcasts about the difference one person with one decision can make for eternity. Um, and, and that is represented both in Michiel Tzvi coming as an orphan to Israel and in the decision that Saba, um, Saba Rabba, your Saba, my uh, great-grandfather made to leave Israel in 1929 and to go to America. And so we also come from a, a generation not only very strong, passionate Zionists, but also of rabbis. We go back many generations, everyone being rabbis, including my father. Um, and, and so you guys grew up as the rabbi's children. Saba, my grandfather, your father, was the main rabbi of Ottawa, Canada, who had so many achievements there of uniting the communities. There's this theme that keeps going through with everything you do, with everything my father did, um, of uniting, uniting people who could be seen as different, but really bringing them together. So your father brought together different communities in Ottawa, making them one big synagogue. And you and my father were kind of put on this pedestal of being the rabbi's son. So how do you think that that affected the decisions that my father made in his life? How did it affect you? And how did it prepare you guys for the life that you ended up living? Uh, it's a great question, and we're very different people, my, my brother and I. Um, my father was the representative, actually, he, was the, he wasn't the chief rabbi, but he was the representative of Canadian jury to the Queen of England. I used to think, I, when I was a little kid, I used to think that there was a carriage outside my house with, a, with horses taking my father and my mother <laughs> to the Queen of England. Um, but there was a car outside and my father would put on um, a tux and tails and my mother would dress in a gown. And we knew that they were special. We knew that uh, my father was uh, more than just a rabbi, that he was a representative of a people. We were a large shul a large synagogue in a very small community. We were only 8,000 Jews in, in Ottawa. Uh, most of them, uh, vast majority were not religious. We had very, very few religious friends. We were on an island. And because of that, 
we were, yes, put on a pedestal, but we were always looked at by everyone. Um, we knew we were in the eye of the public uh, to the point that, um, I'm not going to say traumatized, but my mother used to do walking lessons with my sisters, how to walk into synagogue, keep your head up, put your arms down, everyone's looking at you. And to this day, we no still pressure. joke about it. No pressure. For me, for me, I was always playing. I was a little kid. I was always playing soccer outside. I wasn't, I, I didn't come into synagogue that much as a little kid um, because I was outside having fun and always every Sabbath I tore my pants. There was, there were, <laughs> my, my, my pants always had knee, new knees on them because uh, I was always. Fun. A sign of having fun. Uh, my brother was older, and he was much more involved in the synagogue himself. Um, but my father always took us and made us part of his life. We went, even as children, to the Hillel Lodge, which was the old age home, every uh, many Fridays. And we would go and we would sit with my father as he talked to older people. We learned a lot from that. Um, it was a simple thing, but it meant a lot as we grew up. I remember as a child going with my father to blow the shofar for the mayor to the hospital in Ottawa to blow shofar for the mayor of the, of the city. We were impacted by it. We all related to it differently. I knew, um, to be very honest with you, I saw the problems with the rabbit. In other words, I saw my father deal with people's problems. Um, it's something that Yechiel didn't necessarily do on a micro level. He did much more on a macro level. Oh, that's but, an interesting uh, connection. It's, it's um, the rabbi, the priest, the pastor, whoever it is, deals with so much more than... Um, than just the day-to-day -day workings of a synagogue. You're dealing with people's lives. And right. we saw that. We saw how my father would deal with young couples who were getting divorced, the pain. And then we also saw the financial burdens that some people had and how they dealt with it. And it was always the rabbi that shouldered that burden. And that is something that I think we all learned from. My brother gravitated to it. I gravitated away from it. We also yeah. went, actually, we, my father used to take us to mourners' houses. We knew how to, um, I think we learned how to speak to people and how to feel people's pain. I would say that would be um, one of the great things that we learned to deal, to understand people. And we also learned how to lead. You know, my father was a leader. Yeah. And people yeah. looked up to him. And you have right. to carry yourself a certain way. And um, we learned that. And so when my father began working with Christians to support Israel and the Jewish people, it wasn't as typical as his childhood was. He ruffled a lot of feathers in the Jewish community. And I'm just trying to imagine with all these stories that you told me and all the different demuyot, all the different personalities involved, and how did those closest to him react to his vision of building bridges between Christians and Jews that at that point was a totally new concept and in a way was totally taboo? Uh, Yechiel was always brilliant. 
He always was, even from childhood. And it was, it was obvious that he was a star. But he was also very independent. He would take advice, rarely, but he would take advice, but he was always the decision maker. He did what he wanted to and what he felt comfortable with. And then he would tell us. We always supported him. Even if there were doubts or a lack, I would say actually at the beginning, a lack of understanding. Yeah. The criticism that he faced came a lot later and you probably felt it more at the beginning than we did or that I did. For many years, he, we were oblivious to what anything that was going on. We grew up in a city, as I said, a small Jewish community. We all had friends who weren't Jewish. Our best friends weren't Jewish. And Yechiel actually had a friend down the block, uh, Brian Hawley, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard the name, who later became a priest. Uh, Yechiel would tell us he was reaching out to non-Jews to work together to make the world a better place. You know, how could that be anything bad? <laughs> he said he was forging unity, and only later did we appreciate the magnitude of what he was doing. When Abraham went with Isaac, it is placed right near where, where he lived, where Abraham looked out at the Mount of, of Zion, the Temple Mount, the Mount of Olives, and he said, it, the Bible says, and he saw the place from far. And that is what life is. And that was what his life was. He saw his goal and he was going for that goal, but he needed someone to go with him. You have to go together with someone. And he didn't find it in the Jewish community. There were probably one or two people that worked with him at the beginning, but it was really the evangelical community that joined with him. And he was became oblivious to everything else for a time. And he just concentrated on moving ahead. Yechiel had a, it was a calling. Yechiel had a vision. And his vision was a, a picture that he actually picked up once in China of mountains yeah. that he hit yeah. up. And he really believed that he was on a mission, a goal, and he wouldn't let anything else ruffle his feathers. That lasted for a while, but it didn't last forever. At a time, at a certain time, it started to get to him as time would go on. And, um, and he became more impacted by the criticism uh, that came. A few times uh, in my mind, memories that I have that really were um, impactful to him and really troubled him was uh, Tamar's bas mitzvah. That time um, when he didn't necessarily get to do all, he faced criticism in his own community uh, when he wasn't able to study the Talmud the same way people were saying, we don't want you to study with us. He was starting then to be ostracized from the community that he really felt was his community. And he took that very hard. I was with him actually at a very traumatic moment for him when the Rabbinical Council of America at one of their conventions, uh, one of the rabbis got up and specifically um, put him, uh, put a ban on him. 
Um, I was with him in the car. I remember specifically where I was and how hurt he was, how anger he, angered he was. And he just, he said, they simply don't get it. Right. And the wild thing is that all those people who criticized him, all those people came around, they became his not benefactors they became his supporters in uh, in everything he did and yeah. they realized that they were simply on the wrong side of history and yeah. you know he had a mission and they appreciated the mission and i think that was across the board yeah yeah it, i i look at it really as three different stages as i hear you talking in the beginning that people just didn't get it were the words that you use and i think that's really perfect it's not even that they rejected it uh, they didn't understand ignorance what ignorance is the word i ignorance would say and a lack of, of of vision and dreaming it's something that's never been done that you know when people said i remember him telling me when he would tell people in the jewish community I, i'm working with christians to support israel and they'd say oh what what do they want to do convert us or kill us he said, no, you, it's a new reality. You have to be open to a new reality besides that of what you read in the history books. We have to, they're reaching out their hands and we have a choice now. Do we want to reach out our hands in return or not and have strategic friends and partners that the Jewish people have never had before and the Christian community to have this opportunity to be part of biblical prophecy coming to fruition, the land of Israel, helping and standing with the Jewish people. And there's so much that that, that we have to grow together, to learn together and to accomplish together. And, and so I look at it really as that first stage that people didn't even understand understand what my father's vision was. They just rejected it. And then there was a second stage when the fellowship started raising funds and distributing it to different causes uh, to help Jewish people in need, Aliyah, and helping Jews in the former Soviet Union. And then suddenly the Jewish community in a way didn't, they still didn't understand it, but they were willing to hear it and accept it. And then the third stage, I think happened pretty recently, where it suddenly, the entirety of the Jewish people got it, that this is bigger than donations. This is bigger than helping the poor, even though the fellowship is the largest philanthropic organization in Israel. This is this represents itself in creating a stronger world and a stronger future for our children, whether it's moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, or recognizing the Golan Heights, or that Israel is our greatest ally in a time when there's so much divisiveness, there are these individuals and community of Christians who stand together with one agenda to help Israel and the Jewish people. And that is something that my father in the beginning saw, but took the Jewish community so many years in order to um, in order to really understand this vision that he had. And I remember him there was a time me, in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. a time in there that also when he, he he pivoted to Israel, when he pivoted mm -hmm. from just the religion part and the with the evangelical community where he pivoted to Israel and he started his Washington office, that was a, a major pivot in his life. And I remember um, Senator Lieber, or Lieberman, who was um, who was such a, a fan of Yechiel's and who yeah. helped him um, in, in Washington. And I remember I went with Yechiel and a group of evangelical Christians to meet Condi Rice when uh, she was Secretary of State. And Yechiel and I went outside for a minute by ourselves. And we were talking on outside, we were in the White House. And we were, I remember it yesterday. And um, they were the, they were peppering 
Condi Rice about her stance on the West Bank, on Yudava Shamron. And we were outside and someone came and met us from the community, uh, from the, uh, the those people that were meeting with her. And they said, what are you doing outside? God's inside right now. He said, you yeah. can feel the, you can really feel yeah. the passion and the unity. And uh, it was really a beautiful, beautiful meeting. And that was really the time in my life where I realized things were different. It wow. was, it was a different wow. thing. And that was, now that pivot that he made in Washington was really when he took the organization to another level. Yeah, we're at times now when people in Israel, especially, but around the world, really know um, that the fellowship is a success on a large scale and that everyone's talking about it. And I remember people would refer to my father in Israel as an overnight success. And I remember one time he looked at me and he said, I worked 30 long, hard years to become an overnight success. And so I was just a child in those early years of the fellowship that you were describing that there were so many difficulties. And one of the greatest gifts, I think, that I learned from my father was how he never brought the stress of his work home with him. When he walked in the door, he was just Abba. He wasn't the president of an organization. He didn't either bring that pride back, he, or, nor did he bring the stress. Um, but do you remember what it was like for him in those early days when he struggled? Did he ever talk to you about it? Uh, at the beginning, not really a lot because he was just on a mission. You know, he, had yeah. the, he went to Chicago from the ADL for a specific purpose. And he fulfilled that purpose. It was the the march, and you could talk about that as well as I can, but it was the march that the Nazis were walking through Skokie, and um, they were trying to prevent the march. And uh, he realized early on that he couldn't do it alone. And he reached out to other people, and it was totally accepted, and no one really um, questioned it. Um, I think as time went on, you, you don't get criticism till you're meaningful. In other words, when you're, when you're on your own and you're just raising money and you're talking to some people and you're forging, you know, like friendships, no one really cares. Um, yeah. And that was, there, there was a stress. His stress at that point was pure financial in my mind. It was, how can I keep this thing going? I really believe in it. Is it yeah. going to happen? Once in a while, he would just get a check and he would his life would change because he knew that there was someone out there that was helping him and he could continue. So I would say that in the first years, we were totally oblivious to any stress other than me. I would be totally involved in his uh, financial stress, as you would say. I think as time went on, um, he was clearly impacted with it. I think his real stress, in, in my mind at least, and this wasn't when you were a child, but this was when you were fully aware of, of what was going on, which was when he would move to Israel. This, yeah. that, he was able to deal with people not accepting him and not um, agreeing with him in America because he knew he was right. When he came to Israel, it was a different reality. He saw that people were actually against him. They were they, not that they didn't agree him, but they were against him to the point where he had 
um, posters plastered up against him to the point where he needed shin bed security. He had death threats. He needed security. That was a very stressful point of his life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, and he didn't really know what to do with it. I remember, I remember uh, the Israeli government told him he should have security. There were significant death threats against him and they were posted on his house and at the office. And I remember him talking to me about it and saying, um, I'm not going to get a security guard because if somebody tried to do something to me, what would the security do? Kill him? I don't want to be responsible for anyone's death. And that that's something that stayed with me, that that's the reason why he didn't have a security guard, because if someone tried to harm him, the security guard might have to harm them in return. And it wasn't something he, he wanted to um, have any part of. He was a lot like uh, I always say he was a lot like Joseph. Um, you know, Joseph went, he says, I'm going to look for my brothers. He had a search, a meaning in life. But yet, like Joseph, in so many ways, he was a dreamer. He was just like him. He was misunderstood by his people, by his own brothers. And he was maligned by his own people. But in the end, he rose to greatness. And in the end, his brothers... Not that they bowed down to him, but in the end, they knew he was right. And and that's really history. How would you sum up my father's legacy to the world? Um, That's a little harder. Um, His legacy. I think that, you know, I mean, clearly there is the simple legacy, which I'll call the legacy that the world will always see. And then there's my legacy that I have with him. He changed history. It's just simple to say it that way. He changed history. He was the first to reach out to the evangelical community, and he was the only one for many, many years. As we spoke about before, he reached out, and he reached out alone. And it took a long time for people to appreciate him, and his legacy, the fact that the capital of the, uh, the fact that the embassy in, of the United States is in Jerusalem is thanks to the work of Donald Trump, especially my friend David Friedman, Jared, it all came from a base of Yechiel Eckstein. It really did. His legacy is changing history. He accomplished so much because not only did he deal with the evangelical community and change history there, but his, um, the Karen Lididut, the whole way of charity being given in Israel, the organization that you have in Israel, it's amazing that one person, you too, one person could to do just the United States would be um Dayenu, as they say, would be enough. How could anyone do all that? And then when you combine it with the charity that he was given, that he gives out to people and the care that he gives out to people in Israel, I think he changed history there also. So to me, his legacy is twofold as far as the public legacy. His legacy is both reaching out and building 
bridges with the evangelical community and introducing that friendship, that bond to the world, to the world, South America, Korea, Middle East. It's, it's all the fact that there are relations between other religions, I believe, is all because of his work. And the work that he did in charity in Israel is Dayenu. It's amazing what he did. For me, it's all his soul, his caring for people, for each individual, for family, for the land of Israel, for the people of Israel, and also for the Torah of Israel, which I didn't mention. His, just his, he, his soul is what I miss. To me, his legacy was an angel. He really was a special person that we were gifted to have as such a close relative. He was an angel sent by God and he filled his mission and he fulfilled his legacy that which you carry on. But it's his soul that I remember his warmth yeah. and his caring and his love. Love was who he was. He really loved it. Talked about evangelicals. It's love. Talk about charity. It's love. Talk about family. It's love. He was, he was an angel sent by God. Ah, beautiful. Definitely, I think um, that summarizes him very well, those two identities of both the personal and the family where he was fully present there and fully committed and fully passionate and fully supportive. And then the other side of at work and with the mission being led with this vision to be fully present there, but really... Uh, overriding both of them was this uh, being being driven by love and by a connection to God that he knew his calling and felt um, oftentimes burdened by it, to be honest, but more often than that, being privileged to be able to be completing this uh, mission that he had in life. I thank you for sharing another side of my father with the world. Thank you for listening to the Conversations with Yael podcast. If you like what you have heard, please check out my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, that explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith with inspirational and ancient teachings. You can also visit me at mybiblicalroots.org for more of my teachings, videos, blogs, and books. Follow me on Instagram at Yael underscore Eckstein or on Facebook at Yael Eckstein. Shalom and see you next month.